Good morning, church. This morning's scripture passage is a collection of verses from Exodus 28 and 29. If you're using the Pew Bible, please turn to page 68. We'll start with Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now turn to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now turn to chapter 29, verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now turn to verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old day by day regularly, one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. 
I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is God's word. Good morning, church. As you heard, we are in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a story of God doing two extraordinary things for his people. He delivers them, and then he dwells with them. He delivers them from slavery, and then he seeks to dwell with them as their God. Two radically gracious acts. We're in the middle of Exodus. The Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai. God gives Moses the law and gives them very detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, where his glory would dwell, his very presence. Why the tabernacle? The, the reason why we're talking about this at all is because God wants to dwell among his people. He wants to make his home right in the midst of them. The tabernacle was meant to be a picture of heaven on earth. The problem is God is holy. God is transcendent. He's beyond us. We are not holy. We're sinful. So how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? And the answer is through the sacrifices made in the tabernacle. That's how he's going to do it. God is saying, obey my commands. And then the people stand up and say, we can do it all. And God says, no, you can't. And so you're going to build this tabernacle on this altar. And I'm going to institute priests to show you that you can draw near to me. And I can draw near to you through the sacrifices ministered by these priests. You see, God is setting up this clear principle that he cannot be approached casually. He's not like us. God descends on Mount Sinai in the storm. He creates boundaries around the, the mountains so the people are not destroyed. The problem has always been with us, not with God. We want to know God. We want to experience God. But because of our sin, there's this barrier. So literally, God's holiness bars us. It keeps us out. But then in God's mercy, he opens it back up again. He bridges that gap by instituting the priesthood in the tabernacle to be mediators, which simply means they're going to be the representatives of the people to make a way for sinful people to enter into the presence of a holy God. So today's message, the priest who bears your name on his heart. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we get started. Have you ever been in conflict with Anyone? I know it's a hard question. You might have to think about it for a while. Maybe you and a friend disagree about something, a sports team. Maybe your roommate continues to leave their dishes in the sink without washing them. Maybe your spouse has offended you. Maybe your child struggles with speaking in rude and unkind ways. Maybe a church member said hurtful things to you. Maybe a coworker was talking about you behind your back. We all have conflict, don't we? Most often, the conflict can be resolved by two parties who, who are willing to come together and talk it out. 
that usually means one or both parties have to admit that something is wrong, they've done wrong, they own that wrong, and they take steps to restore the relationship. But there are times when a conflict is so intense, so, um, so egregious, that a mediator is needed, someone who comes in to help reconcile the two parties. If you're a mom here, you are by default a mediator, and you know that. You have to break up fights and arguments and mediate between all kinds of craziness. Recently, I needed a mediator. Many of you know of my ongoing sanctification journey for my driving, <laughs> specifically the speed of my driving. Now, I think I've grown a lot. I think, you know, the Bible, Bible says to, to Timothy, let, let them see your walk and your conduct. So I hope you see me getting better, I hope. Several years ago, our family was taking a, a road trip, which we don't do often because I don't like driving that long, but we took a road trip. It was an eight-hour trip to the, somewhere in the Carolinas. We were meeting up with cousins, and um, it, we were probably on hour seven, I think, and I was tired, and the kids were much younger, and they were tired. They were cranky. I was tired. I was cranky. And so my, you know, when that happens, my foot starts going further down. Right? Just, just move a little bit faster. There was nobody else on the road. I mean, I had everything in front of me. The road was my whatever oyster. I don't even know what I'm saying. But I was going fast. And somewhere in North Carolina, I saw the flashing lights behind me, and my heart sank because I knew I was in trouble. And the officer comes over and says, license and registration? And I ask him, What's the matter, officer? Did, did I do something wrong? He says, yes, sir. You were doing literally in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. Long story short, he gave me a ticket. And because it was in North Carolina, and, and maybe because of the speed, I don't know, but I think it's because of just the state, uh, I had to appear in person at a hearing to address my offense. Well, I don't live eight hours in that area. So uh, that was not feasible. And I asked him what my options were, and he says, yeah, you can get a lawyer. So I discovered I had to hire a lawyer who could, and by the way, once I got the ticket, I was getting all kinds of things in the mail saying, hire my, this lawyer, hire that lawyer. It's like they knew. It's a scam, I'm telling you. It's a scheme. <laughs> anyway, not making excuses, I hired a lawyer to appear in my place on a particular day at a particular time and stand before the judge and he mediated for me. I wasn't even there. But I told him what uh, my side of the story, uh, as, uh, whatever that was worth, and uh, I told him, how, you know, I have a good driving record and all the things I've done. I'm a good person. Well, it doesn't matter. He just said, just, just tell me what happened and I'll do my best. And so he stood in my place. I couldn't wig out of this one, which I've done in the past. I knew I was objectively guilty. But the lawyer stood in my place, mediated for me, and got the sentence uh, reduced, but still, there was a sentence, a fee. Today, I want to show you from God's Word why God institutes consecrated priests, priests who are set apart, who are holy, to serve as mediators. And then I want to show you why we as Christians have an even better priest for us. So lesson number one, we need a holy priest to be our mediator. We need a holy priest to be our mediator. 
Exodus 28 gives the instructions on the priestly garments, the clothes that Aaron and his sons would wear as they serve as priests. And their role, it says in the first couple of verses that were read, was that they would be mediators between the people of Israel and God. In other words, they would represent the people before God. And then chapter 29 describes how these priests would be set apart. It's sort of their ordination service. And there's all kinds of sacrifices involved because that's what they themselves would be doing the rest of their days. Chapter 28, let's consider the garments just for a few minutes. In the Bible, clothing is often used as a symbol to express outwardly what the wearer inwardly ought to be. This makes sense to us today because when the officer pulled me over and he stepped out of the car, he was wearing something. If he was wearing jeans and a cut-off t-shirt, I probably would have kept going. But he stepped out in a uniform with a badge and I knew. That symbolized something. It signified something. It represents, he represents the authority of the state. So I listened to him. That's why God instructs Moses in verse 2 and 3 here of chapter 28. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And it says that they, may, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. I like how Old Testament scholar J.A. Motyer explains, quote, the garments were to express not what Aaron was in himself, but what he represented, what he, what he was meant to be, what his office ideally required him to be, even though the human reality may have been so tragically different. That's why the instructions in chapter 28 begin and end with holy garments, because the high priest was the representative of Israel. In verses 6 to 14 are instructions about this piece of clothing called an ephod. It's basically a sleeveless, vest-like garment worn over top of the other garments, and it was worn only by the high priest. It was made of blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine linen, the same materials that the tabernacle was made of. So there's that connection. And the most important aspect of the ephod were these two precious stones placed on each of the shoulders which had inscribed on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So whenever the high priest would enter into the presence of God in the tent of meeting, meeting in, the, in the tabernacle itself, when he would offer sacrifices and then go in, he would carry the names of the people on his shoulders. Why? Because he represented the people before God. That's what a mediator does. The next garment is the breast piece of judgment in verse 15 to 30. This was tied, this breast piece of judgment was tied to the front of the ephod. It probably said something right in the front here, which contained in verse, uh, the Urum and Thummim, as was read. And it was called the breast piece of judgment. The NIV calls it a breast piece of making decisions. 
That's because this Urim and Thummim were, were stones, and we're not exactly sure how it worked. We, we don't have any instruction exactly how it worked, but somehow these stones were used for the priests to discern God's will as they made decisions on behalf of the people. Another piece element, uh, another important element of the breast piece was there's these 12 stones woven into the very fabric of this, of this piece in the front of their of the front of the ephod. And each of these stones represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 29 again. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So can you picture what's happening? The high priest would enter the holy place on a daily basis and after offering the prescribed sacrifices. There's blood on him because he doesn't just deal with his own sin. He goes in representing all the people, going in to mediate for all the sin of the people. And then one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that high priest would enter into the most holy place that only that one time and later in chapter 28, you'll see it says he has bells on the, on the bottom of his robe so that they would hear he's going in now. He's going in. Some say historically that he'd wear them in a rope because if he died you'd have to pull him out. It was that serious. But he would go in to the, to the Holy of Holies and he would go where the Ark of the Covenant is where God's presence had come down and he would smear the blood on the mercy seat. That's where God was and he wouldn't go in bearing his own name. He went in bearing the names of the 12 tribes on his heart and on his shoulders. And he would literally carry the people into the presence of the Lord, bearing their burdens, bearing their sins, and he brought them to the remembrance of the Lord. Mothers, you can understand this so well. Mothers live in a way where they carry their children on their hearts, don't they? You literally bear your children. You, it, obviously, it's symbolic here, but there's a very real sense where moms bear their children in their hearts. That's what these, Israelites, that's what these priests were doing. They're bearing the, all the Israelites as they go into the presence of God. And then verse 36 to 38, it says, put a turban on, to, on top of their head, on top of the high priest, and it has a gold plate and written on the turban with these words engraved, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Again, the symbolism. Aaron is the representative of the people, the mediator. The sacrifices made by him are made on behalf of the people to God by this one who is set apart or declared holy. He wasn't actually holy. He still sinned. But by the office that he carried and by the sacrifices made, the priest was declared holy to the Lord. And this is how God offered forgiveness of sin on their behalf. This is the role of the mediator. The priest representing the people before the Lord and representing the Lord to the people as, he, as they discern God's will. This is how a holy God could be present among an unholy people through a mediator. And then in chapter 29, we get the instructions for the sacrifices that are required to install Aaron and his son as priests. They are to be consecrated, set apart. 
What this tells us is that in our natural condition, we as humans are not set apart. We are flawed. We are selfish. When God gives us commands, we disregard them thinking we know better. You see, we're dealing with the question in Exodus of how a holy God can live among a sinful people. How can we draw near to God and worship with our hearts when our own hearts and lives betray us? And all throughout Exodus, we have learned that God establishes boundaries around his holiness so that he doesn't destroy us. Exodus 3, he shows up to Moses in the burning bush. Take off your sandals. That's holy ground. Exodus 19, the Mount Sinai, that's where my glory is going to descend. You don't go any further. It's holy. Chapter 25 to 31, tabernacle, there's boundaries. Why? Why? As one fellow pastor said, God likes you, but he is not like you. God is holy and we are not, and that is the problem. So how can priests, how can priests approach God's presence in the tabernacle? How come they were allowed to? What gives them the right? Chapter 29 tells us it's it's through atonement. It's through sacrifices. Something has to die in their place. Why? Why is there always death? Because death has always been the penalty of sin and the effect of sin. God said to Adam and Eve, everything is yours and there are boundaries. There are boundaries. Do not touch it. Do not eat this fruit. For the day you eat it, you will surely die. And then they ate and they sinned. And what does God do? He covers their sin and shame with the skin of an animal. That's atonement. A death occurred. And so the sacrifices show how the priests would be set apart. And and the first offering is a sin offering of a bull. Aaron and his sons would place their hands on the head of the bull and they would kill the bull and the blood would get all over them. And and symbolically, this was an act of identification. The sin of the priest would would go on to the animal and the animal would die instead of the priest. The bull not represented their sin. And so the bull took the punishment of sin, death. And then there were two ram offerings. When Aaron and his sons would sacrifice these rams, they would throw the blood on the side of the altar and then they would take some of the blood and apply it to their ear, to their thumb, and to their toe. This was symbolic that their entire body was set apart for the service of the Lord, to serve as priests. And then in verse 35 to 41 of chapter 29, God gives instructions for the sacrifices that will be made by the priests that will happen every single day from that day forward. Two lambs offered every day, morning and evening. And this is what they would do. Why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Here's why. Because we all walk around with a level of guilt and shame every single day. Whether you're trying to live according to God's standard or the standard set by others or even your own internal standards, deep down, we know that we don't measure up. And many of us don't know what to do with that not measuring up. We don't know what to do with that guilt. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? What did they, what's the first thing they do after they sin? They recognize that they're naked and what do they do? They hide right? They hide from each other. They hide from God. And then they cover up. 
God says, why are you, why are you, why are you covering up? Are we, we're naked now. Who, who told you that? And then they blame. What did you do? The devil made me do it. The woman made me do it. We do the same things, don't we? Some of us hide from God. How do we deal with our guilt and shame? We hide from God. We deny the guilt. You live in a way that acts like you're not flawed and you're not guilty. Some of us do this. You try to convince yourself and others that you're fine. You hide. You don't open up. You never share vulnerably because you, you can't stand someone seeing that you might be flawed even though you know you're flawed and so you, you hide. Other, others of us try to cover up. You know something is wrong, but you can't stand that feeling of guilt or shame, and so you, you cover up by making yourself look better than you are. You try to do better in others, other areas of your life to cover up for that one area of failure. I'm struggling in this part of my relationship, but I'm killing it at work. That's got to count for something. Others of us blame our guilt on the people around us. You blame your parents. I am this way because my parents are terrible parents. I am this way because my spouse is that way. I am this way because my kids are that way. I am this way because everybody else is around me is crazy. Or you make it a habit of criticizing others to boost yourselves up. And others of us try to atone for our guilt. Some of you just know. You know you've done things that are terrible and said things that are terrible, but you think if you could only try to, to do as much good as you can. I mean, if you can, if you can, if you can sort of, like, you're in a hole, but if you can kind of claw your way out of that hole by doing as much good, doing as much, many good things, raise good kids, try to help other people, uh, you know, maybe you can make amends for the messes of your life. We all have some kind of coping mechanism to deal with our guilt and our shame, some kind of atoning or covering of our sin. In fact, we struggle so much with our guilt that we have a hard time forgiving others now. That's the very definition of, of cancel culture. We don't want to see our own sin, but we are quick to point everybody else's sin out, aren't we? When someone messes up, the whole world should now know, and, and they deserve to be shunned, shamed, rejected, and canceled. Can you see how desperately we need a priest? We need someone who is holy, I mean really holy, and set apart, who can mediate between us and God. We need someone who can deal with our sin once and for all. And the kids sang this beautiful song this morning, and the line, Jesus died. So I don't have to hide anymore. That's true. It's true when a kid says it because it's true that God says it. So lesson number two. Jesus is our holy priest and our once for all mediator. What is, what is God's point in instituting the priest and the prescribing all of these sacrifices? He tells us, at the end of 29, verses 44 to 46, he says, look, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons I will also consecrate to serve me as priest. Why? Why have you been talking about the, the tabernacle so long, God? Here's why, verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. 
That's the point. That's his goal. That's his mission. And verse 46, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. That's what he's been up to this whole time. That's what he's getting at with the priest and the ephod and the sacrifices and the altar and the tent of meeting and his holiness. That's why the tabernacle is a picture of heaven on earth. It's where God lives among his people. It's, it's why there's curtains and, and sacrifices because God wants to show, I rescue and I dwell among my people by sheer grace. I hope you're beginning to see how all of this is pointing to and culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.11 says this. Let me read it to you. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, notice tent, that's going back to Exodus, this tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all in the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you, see, do you hear what Hebrews is saying? He's saying Jesus is our ultimate high priest. But he doesn't need to purify himself or consecrate himself like Aaron and his sons. Jesus is already perfect. He is God in the flesh. Did you know that? He never sinned, never had to sacrifice for his own sin. He is truly and fully holy. And so when he goes to the cross, he goes as the high priest, not wearing an ephod. But look, in an even deeper way, he is carrying the names of his people on his heart. Jesus represents us as he enters the holy of holies, not in a tabernacle, but in the presence of God the Father in heaven. And he wears a turban, so to speak, declaring, holy to the Lord. And he doesn't come bringing animal sacrifices, a ram or goat or bull. No, he comes to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice. Please understand, Jesus had to die. Just like the animals in the Old Testament had to die in order to bear the guilt of the Israelites' sin, Jesus had to die in order to bear all of our guilt and all of our shame. That's why Hebrews 9 verse 15 will say this, Therefore he is the mediator. See the language? He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. On the cross, Jesus is our consecrated high priest and he offers himself as the sacrifice in order to be our mediator. His death pays the penalty for our guilt. His death atones for our sin. We can be truly and fully forgiven. And then Jesus rises from the dead victorious and he's seated in heaven. And look, he still bears our name on his heart. Did you know that? Christian, he bears your name on his heart forever. When God the Father looks to Christ, he sees you in Christ. Your name, your identity, your destiny, it's in Christ. You are his son and you are his daughter. 
You see, when you doubt your salvation, when you feel the shame of, of your sin, when you keep falling into the same temptation, when your life gets flips upside down in ways that you never could have imagined, you can still look to your high priest and you can know your name is written right on his heart. It's right there. And you can know that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate you from his love. He will be with you. He will guide you. And look, he will lead you all the way home. That's what a good shepherd does. That's what a priest does. He finishes the work. Do you need to turn to Jesus in faith today? You say, you know, I, I hear, I've, I've been in church, I know about Jesus, but he's not my mediator. He's not the one who reconciles me to God. Then look, today he's the only one who can do it. If you will turn to him in faith, not by working for it, but simply receiving it as a gift. So then, there's one more point. Live as holy priests who proclaim Jesus as mediator. You and I are called to now live as holy priests who proclaim Jesus as mediator. You might be tempted to think, we have Jesus as our high priest, what more is there to say or do? But there is more. Jesus alone is the high priest, the great high priest. But did you know that when he ascended into heaven, he commissioned us to be his representatives in the world? Just like he represented the Father, we now represent the Son by the dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Which means we are now the very tabernacle of God. The dwelling place of God. That's all Christians. That's the church that's why Peter will say this in 1 Peter 2.9, but you, not me as a, as a pastor, not Pastor Brady as a, as a cooler pastor, but you all, all of us, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? There's a purpose clause there. That that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, the grace that saves us is the grace that sends us out. We don't, we don't get to live just however we want now. We don't get that freedom. No. We also don't have to live in a way where we pay God back every day. We don't have to earn his favor. We don't have to atone for our sin. No, that's already been done for once and for all by Jesus. Look, Jesus stood before the judge and whatever the judgment was, which is way worse than my ticket, it was death, Jesus took it. So now God, the, the father looks at me and he says, you're not guilty. Jesus took your guilt. I'm not guilty, right? Then what am I? You're in Christ, you're holy. So what do I do? Live as the royal priesthood, the holy, holy nation that you are. Live holy lives with the Spirit living inside of us, freeing us now to trust Him when we don't feel like it, to strengthen us to obey Him when, 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 it, when it doesn't want to go against the culture or when it will cost you greatly. We now have the ability to speak in ways that are holy, act in ways that are holy, feel in ways that are holy, think in ways that are holy. 
And just like the Old Testament priests represented the people, we get to live as representatives of Jesus. But we're not mediators. We simply point to Jesus as the one true mediator between God and man. We proclaim it as good news to a world that is constantly trying to hide, deny, cover, blame. We proclaim Jesus as the only true mediator, the one who reconciles us to the Father, the one who loves us radically and gives to us generously. And so just like the priestly garments were designed for glory and for beauty, so your life now is meant to be a witness for glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. For his beauty, for his glory. Every day you live in gratitude to God, you're shining the glory and beauty of Jesus. Every time you choose to offer forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it, you are shining glory and beauty. Every time you share your testimony of how God's been working in your life, his amazing grace, you're shining glory and beauty. And every time you walk by faith and not by sight, you are shining glory and beauty. Let's live in the assurance of this love and the confidence that glory is yet to come, all because of our great high priest who bears our name on his heart. Let's pray. Father, we need you. And I thank you that in our need, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to, to ask, where are you? What have you done? Because as soon as we proclaim our need, you show up reminding us it is finished. The work is accomplished. Sin has been atoned for. Guilt has been removed. Shame has been lifted. Glory has come down. You now dwell among us as our God and we as your people. We have something even better than the tabernacle. We have something even better than the priesthood. Jesus, we have you, our great high priest. We thank you for doing what you did, for loving us the way you did, for ministering and mediating for us. I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts. The more we bring to remembrance that we are on your heart every moment, that our names are on your hearts, that you are literally right now interceding for us in the exact ways that we need. Would you remind us, encourage us, and strengthen us to then live out each day, each moment as the holy priesthood you've called us to be. Lord, living holiness is costly. To say that we, must, that we must live in a way that you've called us to live as a reflection of what you've done in us, Lord, we know that that will cost us something. I pray that the beauty of Jesus would be so compelling, so magnificent, that we will say anything else, anything else is worth it to have you, to enjoy you. Lord, give us that kind of vision of who you are, what you have done, and what you have promised to do. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.